This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 43. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. You're listening to Session 43, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com and Audio-Technica. So, got a fantastic show again. I have Mr. Eric Valentine on today. Very excited. Really enjoyed talking with him. Really smart guy and uh, deep thinker, for sure. Let's take a look at his, uh, his discography, his select discography, according to Wikipedia. Now, I know primarily, many of you know the uh, Queens of the Stone Age, uh, record songs for the deaf, that, of course, uh, had uh, Dave Grohl on drums, and uh, we'll talk about that specific record. But he's also worked with uh, Third Eye Blind, uh, their first record in 1997, The Dwarves, The Conscious Daughters, Smash Mouth, uh, Good Charlotte, Lost Prophets, John Fogarty. I mean, the list is quite quite long. Persephone's Bees, The All-American Rejects, Slash, yeah. So, yeah, Eric's coming up. Had a fantastic chat with him. I really, really think you're going to enjoy that. Oh, he's worked with Nickel Creek. Huh, that's interesting. Didn't know that. Um, so, a couple of you have reached out. Uh, Sean O'Keefe over in Chicago, uh, in particular, reached out. He was uh, asking me questions about Sonarworks software. So we had a we had a chat. He actually called me and we uh, we worked it out. He's getting the software installed, and then of course the question came up about how to put the software on the whole system so that if you're on YouTube or Spotify or iTunes, whatever, you can listen to all of that through the calibrated plugin. And I'll I'll just tell you, and, and if you want to do the research on your own, great, but I am going to put up a video eventually on how to do this. Uh, it takes a combination of the Soundflower software from Rogue Amoeba and uh, the AU Lab software from Apple. So those two things in conjunction can help you put that Sonarworks plug-in on the whole system so that everything you listen to will go through that. So in my particular case, I don't listen to Pro Tools through the system. I listen to it through my Universal Audio Apollo. But when I want to listen to iTunes or any other thing that generates music or sound, uh, it goes through the AU Labs plugin. And uh, yeah, that totally works. Or the AU Labs software and the, the Sonarworks thing. So that's that. So uh, yeah, I'll look for, or I'll try to get a video for that up in the next couple of weeks to give you all a hand if it's a little confusing. It took me a while to figure it out, but once I did, it was just, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, this makes total sense. Cool. And, uh, you know, I like to turn you all on to different things, whether it's books or business things or other audio things. You know, I like to tell you about stuff. One of the things I want to tell you about, you know, one of my favorite things to do is we we uh, love to take our kids to the library, to the local library, you know, because it's hey, man, you can check out books for free. I mean, what a concept. Some people think the library is an antiquated idea, but I, I'm a big fan of it, and we, we're really into getting the, you know, the, getting the kids to continue to read. And it causes me to go and dig through the books and find cool things. One, I just stumbled upon this. I'd never heard of it before. It's called The Sonic Boom, How Sound Transforms the Way We Think, Feel, and Buy. It's by Joel Beckerman, 
Joel Beckerman with Tyler Gray. And so apparently this guy, Joel, he's got a company called Man Made Music, and they specialize in sonic branding. And he's been written about in Fast Company, the magazine. Looks like he, yeah, he works with like, he works with companies like Disney and AT&T, but he also works with bands and uh, he's worked with John Williams, you know, Star Wars composer John Williams. Uh, he's worked with OK Go, Will I Am, and Moby, as well as John Legend. Interesting dude. The book is really cool. I'm only like, I don't know, what am I? What chapter am I on? I'm only on chapter four. And it's it's really about uh, all the sounds and the environment that we hear, as well as uh, kind of identifying sounds that uh, have to do with identifying a product. For example, you know, the chime you hear when you start a Mac up or, you know, it could be, I mean, really you could think of the music of working class audio as sonic branding in a sense. Um, but he, he points out different things like that. And, uh, it's, it's a great book. I encourage you to check it out. I will put a link in the WCA recommends area, you know, either check it out at your local library or, uh, pick it up off of, uh, I'll put a link there to pick it up off of uh, Amazon and or go to your local bookstore, either way. And uh, yeah, I think you'll enjoy it. Looks like if you buy it new, it's like 27 bucks. So maybe you can find it for a good price. And uh, speaking of sounds in the environment, sorry, you can hear the bulldog in the background making breathing sounds, which uh, I'll tell you, he did that throughout, not throughout the entire interview, but he did that <laughs> during my interview with Eric. And at one point, Eric goes, or somebody, somebody's fallen asleep during my interview, something like that. Anyways, so it was a comical moment. So, um, all right, that's it. Speaking of Eric, let's just jump right into it. I think you're really going to enjoy this. Eric Valentine here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right. All right, I'm all set. Cool. So I, I have a small world thing for you, independent of the interview. Um, okay. 1992, San, Fran San Francisco, uh, cover of BAM magazine. I'm in a band called The Sextants. You're in T-Ride. Michael Urbano is in The Spent Poets. And the three bands are on the cover of BAM magazine. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's cool. It took Sweet. me a long time to figure it out because I, you know, after Urbano and I became friends, uh, I brought it up and he goes, and you know that's Eric Valentine there uh, in T-Ride. I was like, Really? And I went back and was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> super, super that's, weird. That's cool. Yeah. I I remember the band name Sextants. I, I don't I don't know that um I don't know that I ever had a chance to see you guys play, but uh I, I remember the band being around for sure, you know. Yeah. Long time ago. Yeah. Seems like a million years ago. Yeah, but welcome to the podcast in general. And it's it's a I'd say it's nice to meet you. I've actually met you before at uh, AES. Oh, okay, cool. In San Francisco, I think uh, you had just brought out the console, the undertone console. Yeah, so that was probably 2010. Yeah, mm -hmm. that was a while ago. Yeah, it was the first year we did AES. So while we're while we're talking about it, tell me a little bit about your involvement with that. Is that uniquely your company, or is there a big batch of you guys? Yeah, I mean, it's it's primarily collaboration of two people, myself and um, this guy named Larry Jasper. I met Larry because he was referred to me as somebody that could fix tape machines and fix studio gear, uh, sort of a freelance guy that does that. And, um, you know, so I was, I was hiring him to do those things and, and just, you know, being around him and hearing him talk about stuff, it just became very apparent that the guy is just inconceivably brilliant with 
audio circuit design. So not only mm. does he know every single circuit of every single great vintage piece of equipment, he knows the things they did right, the things they did wrong, ways to make them better, how he'd do it. Like, it, it was just insane. The, this, the wealth of knowledge that the guy carries around was just totally staggering. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was really frustrated with the console that I had at the time. I was talking to him about putting something together that was, you know, used bits and pieces from other consoles, but we sort of built our own sort of busing system and stuff like that. And then the more we talked about it and the more I was like, well, I'd actually like it if the equalizer did this or the other thing. Can we modify it? And then finally it was just like, fuck it. Let's just fucking do this like from scratch and see what happens, you know, like – He'd talk about all this theoretical stuff, and I I got very curious about it. Like, what if we go all the way down this road and try and make the most no-compromises best ever, you know, theoretical audio recording console in history? And just see what, you know, let's just see where that takes us, you know? Mm -hmm. It was an amazing experience. So it was really the combination of the two of us. He really knows how to do, you know, the minutia of the actual design of the circuits at the component level. And, you know, I was dictating sort of like features and designs and how things were going to function and listening and, you know, making sure that the stuff was really being usable in a, in a musical way. Yeah. And so the two of us together would sort of, you know, figure stuff out. So we ended up building the console, which took an insanely long time. You know, we first started talking about it in 2005. I didn't install the first one in my studio until 2010. And so, I, I mean... It's just one of those things. I mean, I'm sure everybody can guess building an audio console from scratch is probably pretty complicated. It's a thousand times more complicated than you think, you know? <laughs> and so, it, you know, I thought it would take a couple years, you know, and I was being conservative, but it took five fucking years to do it, you know? Yeah. It was an incredible experience. I, you know, I learned so much about, you know, all of these tiny little details that add up to that, that are really about that connection between, um, you know, the the technology of, of music and the emotion of music, which is something that's always been really fascinating to me. You know, like, hmm. I want something to feel a particular way when it comes out of the speakers. And that's ultimately what I'm chasing is this feeling that I get when I listen to things. And you really get down to, like, you know, what type of dielectric in the capacitor gets me closer to that feeling than another one, you know? and And really d- drilling that deep down into it to try and pinpoint every aspect of it to create an, an emotional experience. It takes an incredible amount of research on your part to figure out, I mean, when we're talking about components like yeah. that and how you equate components to emotion. Yeah. I, I can't imagine uh, what you do in your spare time. Yeah. <laughs> it was an exhaustive process, you know, and uh, tons of listening tests. And at a certain point, I, I um, got really, I, I just had to embrace the reality of, of how listening tests need to be done. And um, and so then I got into this whole other realm of the, you know, psychological influence of se- sensory perception, that there's a, a very, very powerful psychological influence when you're trying to experience something and gather some sort of, you know, uh, objective analysis of it. And And so I realized at a certain point that there's, you know, this uh, an expectation bias. And so I was listening to different versions of just a simple, like, line input amplifier block and trying to see if I could hear a difference in the capacitor that's in the feedback loop. And and it's like, you know, Larry would tell me, like, well, with this type of capacitor, you might hear something like this. And with this one, you might hear something like that. And, you know, 
I'd, I'd put them up and I'd compare them. And every time it's like I was hearing exactly what he described, you know, and be like, wow, that's incredible. You know, you just every time, you know, you describe exactly what I'm hearing. And then I got suspicious and started doing blind listening tests. And it was astonishing how all of that just disappears. As soon as you don't know what you're expecting to listen to, it dramatically changes what you hear. And I basically had to start the whole process over again where retraining myself how to how to do critical listening and retune in my critical listening ear because I had just been hearing what my brain was telling me I wanted to hear for mm-hmm. so long that I wasn't hearing the truth, you know? And so then at that point, I, you know, I started the process of really being able to figure out where that threshold is of what's really perceivable by human beings and what things just are beyond that, you know, and then figure out ways to adjust the test, adjust my listening environment, adjust, you know, the level of focus that I have when I'm listening to be able to hear more and more minute details um, in stuff and, and have real results that are repeatable, that I can prove, you know, where 100% of the time I can pick it out. And very lucky for you to find a, a willing participant in, in, I'm sorry, his name, uh, Larry, right? Larry Jasper, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, to have somebody close to you to to work in that that deep a level. I mean, he's he's as crazy as I am, so it's a great partnership. Did you have these moments of, like, being told this is what you may may or may not hear, hearing those things, and then doing the blind test and being like, oh, wait a minute, what, what am I hearing? There must have been many points in the process where your your faith in what you were hearing and the components and the whole thing probably came into question many times. For sure. And so the, the way it would go is, um, you know, I'd start a listening test knowing which is which and try and tune into a difference that I'm hearing and then transition into doing a blind listening test and see if I could still pick those out. And if I can't, then it's an indication that... Um, you know, that it's it, it's just too small of a difference to be perceivable. But even when that happened, we would still go, I would still choose the theoretical best. And so based on, you know, Larry's expectation of how the components would perform. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think there were any instances where I was like, well, I can't hear it. Fuck it. We just won't do that, you know, uh, because most of the time, you know, it's not, it wasn't a difference of an ex- of expense that, you know, was going to change the world. And so it it wasn't more expensive to use the theoretical best. Um, The place where I got really, really picky was Transformers because those really do have a sonic imprint. Mm -hmm. And we had a very unexpected result with that where uh, the first product that we put out um, was a rack mount uh, mic preamp and equalizer. And we used what was sort of the theoretical best um, for that, uh, for the output transformer, um, the Cinemag transformer. And then when we were getting into doing a four-channel mic pre where there would there'd be four channels in there and I'd need four output transformers, just physically being able to fit everything, I had to consider the possibility of using a smaller transformer. And so we did that and started doing listening tests. Everybody in the building liked the sound of the smaller transformer better. I just, we, I just couldn't get anybody to pick the original one. And theoretically, it's it's really the appropriate choice. It has the appropriate headroom for the low end and all of that shit. But for some reason, the smaller transformer, everybody preferred. And so I was like, fuck it. Were you in agreement with everybody? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I definitely preferred the character of the high end. And 
I've I mean, not heard them, but I've seen I've seen the products you're talking about because obviously you know Stephen Jarvis lives up here, and right, yeah. you know, I run into you know Twenty Fifth Street Studios. I've seen them over there, and um, yeah, very interesting. And the design, what catches my attention, and what caught my attention, I think, at AES of the console was your uh, the metal oh, used right. on the surface. Yeah, yeah. Could you explain that a little bit for those that don't know what we're talking about? Sure. Yeah. So. That was one of the things um, that I really needed to overcome with, with a re- recording console because um, the last console that I had was a very large, you know, uh, Neve console that it was just massive. And so, you know, you have this this um, expansive work surface sitting in front of you and then the speaker sitting on the meter bridge and there's this horrible reflection that comes off of the face of the work surface and creates all this comb filtering in the worst area. And there was an interim time where I I got rid of that console and I had sort of a little kind of thrown together hybrid setup where, you know, I really didn't have a console in front of me. And suddenly the speakers was like, holy shit, like this is what these fucking speakers are supposed to sound like, you know. I just couldn't go back. It's like as soon as I heard that clarity in the mid-range, because it's basically like from 1K to 5K is just fucked when you have an NS10 sitting on the meter bridge of a console. I know a lot of people have gotten used to that sound and it just sort of is what it is, but it's it's bad. It's not a not a cool thing at all. And once I heard it without it, I, I just there's no way I could go back. And so we we had to resolve that issue and I you know, we debated and struggled and tried to figure something out and finally it was it was Larry, as always, Mr. Fucking Super Genius, that um I had a this weird old AKG D200 microphone set up, and it has this really weird um, grill on it, this porous metal grill. And he looked at it, and he was like, this could work. You know, it's acoustically transparent. They're using it as a, as a you know, an invisible windscreen on this microphone. And there's a whole series of mics that use it, these AKG mics. And so... We got some of the material and experimented with it, and and it absolutely works. So it's a solid enough surface that you know you can um, laser cut holes in it and have the controls come through, but it's completely acoustically transparent. The sound literally just passes right through as if there's nothing there. So there's hmm. no reflection that comes off of the face of the console, and it That's just brilliant. It completely eliminated the issue, and so it's great. You know, I have, you know, this big, huge sixty-channel you know, undertone audio console in my control. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the speakers sound like they're just sitting on stands in the room, you know. That's amazing. Uh, expensive, I would assume, for that me- for that metal, right? Yeah, it's not cheap, you know. I mean, the, the metal, this porous metal, they usually use it for, like, diesel fuel filters and, you know, stuff like that. And so... Wow. Um, you know, it's not... They, it's typically never used for this application. It's, it, nobody's ever used it for, you know acoustic audio applications, you know. Interesting just uh, whether you're talking about filter for diesel engines or bookcases, uh, using non-typical uh, materials in, in out in the world, in the world of audio that aren't necessarily meant for that. Like, yeah, it's like this, this metal or, you know, I'm just talking about like people using bookshelves for diffusers and stuff like that. Right. That, right. That that's always fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. They, sh- they should have a, uh, a special section of the maker fair, the make magazine dedicated to a uh, pro audio and alternative, uh, things that we could use. I yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, 
this the studio that I'm in now is my sixth studio location, and you know, so I've built out a lot of studios, and you know, I've just mastered the art of just cheap utilitarian get it done you know studio build out stuff and so like building things like diffusers and stuff like that you know i've gone through that process of figuring out okay how can i do this doing as little cutting as possible using as much as much off the shelf materials as possible covering as much square footage as possible you know like all of those things and just like you know my sound room has these giant like 12 foot by 12 foot diffusers that are you know they cost maybe a couple grand to, to to build which would normally cost 10 grand you know to have somebody build for you can you reveal some of your off-the-shelf secrets of these of these items or, or give us some tips that you you think people are overlook like a trip to home depot or, or or a hardware store could yield some great items i take it for sure yeah um the diffusers that i built in the sound room there's a formula for calculating what frequency range gets diffused and um and so you you know you can look that up and figure out how wide you want each channel and the, the various depths that you want to use it's all based on prime numbers this quadratic residue formula that they uh, that this German guy came up with for for diffusers you know and so you can use off-the-shelf uh, panel board uh, two by fours and stuff and and put it to get just configure it in a way where it's you know close enough to the original formula to get the results and have very little cutting and cover a huge amount of square footage so I, I, I built two huge panels of that um, the other really you know a, a lot of sound rooms that typically have, you know, a parallel floor and ceiling, which is a big problem. You get that flutter, you know, between mm-hmm. the floor and the ceiling. They're like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Um, all you have to do is, you know, take a piece of relatively thin plywood, maybe like a quarter-inch piece of plywood, and hang it from the ceiling so it just bows just a little bit, gone. It just completely eliminates the flutter. And it's hmm. super cheap to do. Just hang them from the ceiling, Done. Now, I've seen some videos somewhere where you've kind of replicated at least my first uh, uh, exposure to like the concept of the umbrella over right. the drum kit was at Ocean Way in like the 90s. Uh-huh. That's, that's uh, where we got the I, idea for sure. Okay. Do you still, you still employ that? Yeah. Th- yeah. We call it the drumbrella. And, the uh, drumbrella. <laughs> yeah. It's still there. I use it all the time. I love it. Yeah, and and one thing I noticed in in I think can't remember where I saw the videos, but it was your studio seemed kind of raw and unfinished, and I was like, that's, that's actually refreshing to, to me, yeah. <laughs> Be- because like sometimes you know sometimes you go into studios and it's like so overdone that not no detail was left, you know, undone. It looks like a Starbucks when yeah. you walk in, and you're like. Uh, okay, don't. T- I'm not going to touch anything. Yeah, that's just not my thing. You know, it's like I'm all about the results, and um, you know, I I definitely, um, you know, I mean, I just literally lost my mind a week ago and decided I was just going to build a wall in the middle of my fucking sound room, and so I did. You know, um, and so there's a lot of stuff like that going on just to. Because there's a, you know, I have a particular sound or vision that I'm chasing, and and I just want to make it happen. The aesthetics, they they sort of limit options on that. Um, the the way I always look at it is anything that you want to build architecturally in a studio, you can build it so it works, or you can build it 
so it looks great. If you want to have it look great, you just add another zero to the end of the number that it costs to do it. It's literally <laughs> 10 times the cost. And Interesting. So, um, and so I just skip that. <laughs> you know. You just keep keep that zero out of there. I do. And and so I just leave it sort of rough and raw and experimental and, you know, you know, because things are always changing. I've been in this building for 15 fucking years. It's a long time to be in one studio, you know. And mm-hmm. so I've I've rebuilt the control room a few times. I've changed the, the sound room a bunch of times. I have to do that so I can walk into that room and go, this is going to be a new inspiring experience for me and not go out there and be like, Oh, hello, same room again, you know, like, (laughs) you're just going to sound exactly the same as the last time I walked in here, you know, like, it's, it's important to stay inspired and sort of have that that sense inside you that it's like, this is going to be new, this is going to be a step forward, this is going to be different. And it, it keeps you motivated. You know, I'm fucking 46 years old, I've been doing this for 30 years. And it's like, that inspiration is the most important thing. It's absolutely everything. You know? I, th- I think it was, maybe it was the last podcast. Maybe it was the one before that. I, I purposely brought up the concept of mixing things up, change, getting out of routine from everything from uh, mixing routines to switching cell phone carriers and everything in between yeah. because you kind of you pay the same bill. You never know, oh, there's a cheaper deal out there or there's a different way I could mix a di- and get a different result. And yeah. Uh, are you familiar with, uh, I think, Carol Dweck is her name? She talks about the uh, the growth mindset and the fixed mindset. And they're talking about it. I have two young boys, and they're talking about it in the schools a lot. And it's just, you know, uh, being flexible and being open to growing and being, you know, looking at challenges and embracing those challenges rather than saying, oh, that's, I'm not smart enough for that, or I can't yeah. do math or whatever. It's just like embracing embracing those ideas. Uh, it's a great great uh, concept and very uh, sounds like you're you're kind of doing it without reading the book and going through the whole thing. Yeah, it sounds like we're boring somebody to sleep in that room. No, you know what it is? It's my bulldog. I'm so sorry. He's sitting here. <laughs> it's it's he's, awesome. Uh, yeah, he's. I uh, love that. Let's see. <laughs> oh man, he's he's, inc- he's about seventy pounds wow 75 pounds and uh yeah he's uh i didn't know if you could hear that that's funny that's why i've reached back and kind of pat him to say hey wake up here i love to hear the sound of snoring while i'm talking (laughs) (laughs) sorry um that's funny so um all right, so let me let me just get to it because I, if I forget, I'm going to kick myself and call you later about it. So, obviously, one of the one of the very most one of the most talked about elements of the uh, beyond the the how cool the music is for uh, Queens of the Stone Age uh, songs for the deaf yeah. is the discussion that you recorded the drums and the cymbals in two different passes. I'm sure it took more than two passes, if it's true, but. Is that the case? That is the case, yeah. Um, the cymbals were recorded separately um, on pretty much all of those songs. I, I think maybe Love Song, we did not do that, but that may have been the only exception. Um, and uh, yeah, that was something that is is more uh, Josh's thing. Um, he had done that on um, at least one of their previous records, and I think they did that on Rated R. And... Um, 
was very fond of that. He likes to have a lot of control over, you know, the presence of the symbols and the overall blend of things, you know. And uh, so we did do that. And, um, you know, it was really interesting. The way that we did it to try and make it as manageable as possible is um, uh, when when Dave was playing the actual drum passes where we're capturing the sounds of the drums themselves, we set up um, electronic pad cymbals. Um, so he'd actually have something to physically hit so he's not having to, like, pull pull his hand, you know, when he's trying to, like, go for cymbals and stuff. And we'd also have the sound of a cymbal, you know, albeit not a particularly great-sounding cymbal, but at least something in the earphones. So, you know, when he goes to hit a crash cymbal, you hear that splash of energy in your ears, and it things sort of make sense. And so so while we were tracking the drums, he had cymbal pads and and was basically just playing the drum kit the way he normally would. And so then when we went back to do the... Um, the cymbal pass, um, we, I took a, a snare drum, pulled the head off, filled it with styrofoam, covered it with a towel, like deadened it as much as I possibly could, did the same thing with the rack tom and the floor tom, so he could actually physically hit those um, while he's playing the cymbals, and again, not be sitting there just, ha- you know, he can just play the way he naturally does, and... Um, and not have to be distracted by the fact that there's nothing for his left hand to hit for the snare drum, you know, and hmm. be thinking about not playing that. And then the only thing that we didn't really have to do was set up a kick drum. He was able to just sort of mime the kick drum hits just with his foot on the floor. And so I didn't have to do a deadened kick drum. And it worked quite well. You know, Dave obviously is an incredible drummer and oh, yeah. has probably like the best studio like energy and just unbreakable spirit of anybody I've ever recorded. He's the the most like, come on, let's fucking do this. This is great fucking guy, you know? <laughs> and about halfway through the symbol overdub process is the only time I've ever seen him go, whose fucking idea was this? Like, <laughs> this is the worst idea in the world. <laughs> because like, these songs, you know, there were certainly things about the parts that were pretty, you know, that were composed and 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 mapped out, but there was a lot of improvisational shit going on. I mean, we did this kind of on the fly where I have two studios at uh, two rooms at, at my studio and so they would be rehearsing a song while I was setting up drum sounds for the next one, you know, that we would record. So they'd be rehearsing that song and he'd be learning it on the fly and go like, "Okay, now I basically know the arrangement." and then just come in and play it. And there's a lot of the drum fills and shit that were just off the top of his head, you know? I mean, he really didn't map it out that much. And so when we had to go back and overdub cymbals, he had to relearn all the drum fills that he played and all of that stuff and figure out how to accommodate it, you know? It was it was challenging. It was it was hard at times. And it was the, it was the only time I've seen him show any slight hint of frustration, you know? And how did you feel about it on your side? Like, not only the process, but the result. Um, I, you know, there's there's two sides to it. I think, um, let's see, you know, when we started the process, because the, the drums and bass were all being recorded on 2-inch 16 track. And oh. so we, I was trying to basically punch through these fucking cymbal overdubs, you know, on an Ampex MM1200, which is not easy. And... Um, <laughs> And so uh, there was a certain point where I just had to give that up. Uh, And it was the point where Dave, I could tell he was getting frustrated and and we were just losing momentum in the process. And so I switched over to the computer and we finished tracking them in the computer. 
I didn't make a lot of fanfare about that at the time, the choice to do that. That was sort of like, yeah, we're just going to, I'm going to switch things around a little bit and we'll keep on going, you know, and uh, didn't make a big deal out of the fact that I was tracking the symbols into the computer. Um, I just didn't want it to be an issue. And I knew it was the right thing to do because the performances were going to start to suffer if I didn't. The trade-off is, I think, you know, it did allow um, to really feature a very, very unique drum sound on that record where we really didn't use um, a lot. We didn't lean on close mics a lot. Um, and we had that luxury because everything wasn't getting swallowed up in cymbals. And so, mm. no, there's no close mics on the toms. Um, there is a close mic on the snare, but, you know, I, it doesn't get used a lot. There's really, um, there's sort of like a left, center, and right overheads, which are really the majority of the drum sound. It's a cool opportunity to hear drums sort of exist more in their natural space and not have it sound like, you know, like this, one inch right. from the fucking drum head, which is right. a way nobody listens to a drum, you know? It's just a perspective that nobody's really familiar with. And so it's cool to be able to hear that. Um, so that's that's the upside, is the flexibility and being able to sort of, you know capture a more natural drum sound uh, in the room or even have more options to, you know, when you're mixing it, to push it in different directions uh, because you're not battling that cymbal bleed, you know. The downside is that I do hear a disconnect between the feel of the drums and the feel of the cymbals. As amazing mm. as Dave Grohl is, it's impossible to have that level of synchronicity you know, in your limbs when you're doing it in two separate passes. It just doesn't happen. And so there's places where the cymbals sound ahead or behind the drums, and it feels a little weird to me. It just doesn't feel as solid to me as um, as if, you know, as when he would just play it normally. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, on the stuff where we tracked into the computer, um, I, I made those adjustments at times when things really didn't feel right to me. I moved the cymbals around just to have it sound like the way it would if he actually just fucking played it, you know? I would rather have that than have this sort of like handicapped version of Dave Grohl, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, objectively, uh, I mean, just being a fan of the record... Uh, it the the drum sound is very unique, and yeah. I really love it. And I guess from a critical listening point, I haven't listened that intently. I've listened just like ah, this is I enjoy this. I love what I'm hearing. You know where all the bodies are buried, right? Yeah. So as you know, as a as an objective listener, it's a net gain. So whatever the issues that I was aware of, you know, with a disconnect in the feel between the cymbals and the drums, um was not as important as the uniqueness of the sound, you know, that everybody has found very striking on that record. And so hmm. so I, I, I think it's a net positive for sure, you know. And I've never heard somebody say the drums feel weird, you know. I mean, there were times early on when that record first came out, everybody was accusing me of using samples on it. Ah. There's no fucking samples on that record, you know, because the drums are so sort of isolated from the cymbals in a peculiar way that and and dave plays so inhumanly consistently like he just has this thing where his his arms swing back and forth when he's playing um in a way that is just so relentlessly consistent that it sounds like samples it's really crazy well and i mean the thing i guess that you know samples bring to the table is that clarity of the drum, I mean, if you're using really good samples, mm -hmm. uh, the, 
the clarity of the drum in 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 its environment without the cymbals. So right. you essentially created your you could one could argue you you just created uh, samples on your own. I mean, you're not in the traditional sense, but I mean, right. Yeah, perform samples. <laughs> perform samples. What yeah. you gained is what a lot of people are trying to gain through samples, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. You're absolutely right. Because, you know, even in, in my best moments of recording drums where I'm happy with the drum sound, I get back and I'm to my mix room and I start mixing and I'm like, oh, I'm really tempted here. I think I'm going to have to drop in something to right. give me <laughs> get that damn satanic hi-hat out of there. Yeah. I it's, think it was Steve Halbini that said the hi hat is the is the the devil's work or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Steve. All right, I hope you're enjoying the Eric Valentine interview. This is pretty informative, I gotta say. Want to take a little time out to tell you about a promotion that Audio Technica has going on, and of course, this is their promotion where if you buy a, a sele- one of the Select Forty series mics, you get a free pair of the MX Fifty headphones. This is a promotion that runs till December, so. The banner on the website will take you there. So if you end up buying one of these 40 series mics, you want to make sure and click on that, head on over, fill out the form, get your free headphones. Now, I've mentioned before, we use the um, 40 series here for the show, uh, 50 series I use when I'm over at Sharkbite and uh, love them. Really great, great headphones. And uh, they work for me in a big way. One of my favorite pairs of headphones, actually. So there you go. Make sure you do that. And, uh, you know, as far as like if you're trying to figure out what mic, you know, one one of the mics actually on there, the 4033, very popular mic that's been around for a, a long time now, really well-built mic. In fact, well, all the 40 series, the thing about the 40 series is they all use a very similar body. And then the electronics are very different inside, which gives each mic, of course, its own specific character and voice. But the lowest price of those mics would be the 4033. So, you know, if you're looking to add a large diaphragm condenser to your collection and you want something uh, price-wise that's pretty friendly, you can get, let's see, I think you can get a, yeah, you can get a 4033. I think street price is like $399. Then, of course, you get your headphones. That's, you know, $169 as far as street price is concerned. I don't ever think in retail terms, but street price terms. So there you go. Audio Technica, make sure you head on over and check that out. And uh, that's it. Let's get on back to our interview with Mr. Eric Valentine here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Um, Now, you're a drummer, and I'm sure, and I am a drummer as well, and I'm sure that uh, you obsess about drums or place an emphasis on drums that maybe a bass player or a guitar player producer engineer would not. Yeah, I'm definitely a drum-centric record maker, for sure. And maybe that's why I love the sound of the records you make, because I identify with that. Um, So do you think when you're in a position of of playing producer, do you ever like think, well, I I can't be too hard on the drummer, even though you really, you expect uh, fantastic results from the drums? Where do you fall on that? Do you do you try to just say, I have a vision, we're going to go with that vision and stick with the spirit of the band? Or how do, how do you maintain keeping drummers from going insane working with you, I guess is really the short, the short question. Yeah, I mean, um, that's, a, that's a hugely important part of the process. The, the sort of psychological part of 
um, working with a group of people and helping people, doing your best to help people to, you know, do their absolute best on, on a record, give their very best performances, push themselves to do better than they have in the past um, is a big, big part of the process. You know, I structure my projects where I do, you know, all in budgets where we're not looking at the clock and um, it's just, you know, one fee and I just work on the record to everybody loves it, you know. And so I do it that way because it gives me a little more flexibility to to have time and patience with people. Um, so if we really are trying to push, you know, beyond somebody's current ability, we'll take the time to rehearse it and get comfortable with it and get it to a place where they can really execute it. And, and I think a lot of people sort of lose sight of um, how important that can be, number one, and really ultimately how quickly it can go, you know, like just a little bit of effort rehearsing something. You spend, let's say, 20 minutes rehearsing a particular part. It makes a huge difference. It's a massive difference. And, and I think a lot of drummers are, you know... Everybody's sort of being protective about the mystique of their abilities, you know, to be able to sit down and just have brilliance emanate from them at all times, you know. And um, and so it takes a second to sort of get past that and get and have people get comfortable with the idea that, like, you know, we're all here to help each other do something really incredible. And I'm not here to judge anybody's ability or lack of ability. I think, you know, they're all everybody's great. And the only thing I care about is the desire and effort to do something extraordinary. How we get there does not fucking matter, you know? And so there's, there's a lot of very specific language that I use when I'm communicating with artists, um, you know, uh, to try and invite them to push themselves and, and move forward. And, uh, and so I never go, that doesn't work. I don't like that. That's not a great part. You're not playing this very well. I never, ever address anything in negative terms. You just can't do it because the vibe in the room just goes, you know. And so I always phrase things like, I think there's a missed opportunity here. We could do something really cool in this spot. Check this out. And everybody's like, hey, let's, try, let's check this out, you know. And so it, it's really, really important how you address those things. And, uh, drum, you know, drummers and I uh, get along really, really well because... I understand the physicality of it a lot. You know, I still play drums. I just played drums on a, a song, you know, a couple of days ago that I'm mixing now. And particularly when it comes to playing drums in a way that translates great in a recording studio, that's what I have the most experience doing. And um, and so um, as soon as people get past the thing of like, I'm not here to try and prove that I'm the best drummer in the world. I'm here to try and help them be the best fucking drummer they've ever been in their life and capture it in a recording that's going to exist forever. And then mm -hmm. they really embrace it. They're like, let's, let's work on this. I want to be amazing on this record. And they really get that we're on the same side, you know? What I deal with a lot, and obviously I'm dealing with a lot more, uh, obviously smaller independent bands than, than, than you are in, pro in smaller budgets. I run into drummers who are very protective and very conservative sometimes no, I don't, I don't want to change the symbols. I don't want to move. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to alter anything because that's my sound. And I've been doing it like this for 15 years kind of concept. Do you run into that? Number one, I think I have to concede that it, that changed for me a little bit, you know, um, when I sort of made that transition of, of having visible projects out in the world that people, 
um, you know, are are very fond of, they become much more trusting. I mean, there's just there's no getting around that reality. And so I, I, I'm afforded a lot more leeway than I think certainly I, I used to be, you know, before that transition happened. Because I worked in a studio just hiring out studio time by the hour, you know, fucking 15 bucks an hour and ad and BAM magazine, you know, in the 80s. And, and, I, and I experienced a lot of that of like, you know, who the fuck are you? You're some dickhead in a studio for 15 bucks an hour and you're not going to tell me how to my, set my shit up, you know? And so I, I don't know that... Um, uh, the experience that I have with it now would really, I'd be able to sort of, you know, it would be hugely relevant to the experiences that I was having when I was just renting out studio time, you know? Mm. Um, but again, it's, it's really about how that stuff gets addressed. And, um, and so it's, it's the same golden rule of like, never, ever, um, address things in negative terms, you know, that there's something wrong with the way they have things set up, you know. Um, as soon as you do that, this the defenses go up and people are not going to want to change things, you know. And so it's always inviting a positive change um, to, to try as an experiment is, is the path, you know, to, to, to success on that every time. That makes a lot of sense. And it's something that I'm constantly working on is, you know, communication with people and trying to trying to speak in positive terms because drummers in particular, and maybe maybe it's because I am a drummer and I'm very uh, aware of. Would you agree that drummers have you know idiosyncrasies and uh, odd care odd characteristics compared to the rest of most band members? You know, they all do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they all do. Drum drummers have their own idiosyncrasies, you know, and and. Uh, I don't know if if any particular band member could ever match the uh, you know the manic idiosyncrasies of a lead singer, but um, <laughs> uh, that's a, that's a tall order. But you know, drummers are typically you know very very particular about things. I, well, I don't know. I, I here here's the way it goes. Um, the the better a drummer is at playing drums, the less picky they are. That's absolutely the way it goes. I have noticed that. Yep. And so really like, great ones. Yeah. You know, so like Dave Grohl giving no fucks about any of that shit. He just shows up, plays whatever drums I have set up. Uh, and I'll ask him like, what kind of drumsticks? I don't give a shit. You know, is that kickball? Yeah, it's fine. You know, like whatever. Come on, let's go. Let's play. You know, like he's just not giving a shit and it doesn't matter at all. He sits down on the drum kit. It sounds like Dave Grohl and he plays great, you know, um, Dennis Chambers was very similar. Like, you know, that one I was super, super nervous about. And like, you know, he had a drum kit set out, sent out for him in advance. And so I was like looking at YouTube videos and pictures and trying to make sure I got everything set up exactly the way, you know, because I'm not a drum tech. I don't really know how he set shit up. You know, so I spent like all night the night before just like getting everything perfect and studying pictures and trying to make everything just right and all this stuff. And um, tuning and trying to make sure everything was perfect. And <laughs> he showed up to play. And uh, and I told him, like, okay, you know, I was really, I've worked really hard. I hope everything's in the right place for you and tuning and stuff. And he sat down and just went like, bah, bing, bong, 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 bong. yeah, it's great. Let's go. You know, like, <laughs> just like didn't care at all. It was so funny. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it didn't matter because he's an amazing fucking drummer, you know. And the, the people that I've worked with that are really, really picky about this rack tom has to be exactly at this angle in this position or I just won't be able to play the song 
are because you know they're not amazing drummers you know and so they've they're they got crutches they're leaning on have you ever been in a position to ask a band to remove their drummer for the sake of the record i've only done that one time it sucks it's the worst worst part of my job it's horrible hate it but Hmm. had to do it you know so back to your studio for a second um You've been in this building for a while. Have you rented this building the entire time, or do you own the building? No, I was I was very very fortunate. I was you know um, coming off of uh, you know the the run of uh, stuff that I worked on in the '90s. You know, I had enough resources to be able to buy this building in 2000, and so uh, uh, so yeah, I I was able to buy it. Very smart, smartest yeah. purchase I've ever made in my life, unquestionably. The success you do have, like. I mean, obviously, there's there's got to be a point which you got it from the drum kit and was like, I'm going to produce records, or I'm going to make records. Yeah. What, is that accurate to say? Yeah, I think, um, you know, early on, I, I started playing drums very young. I was about five years old when I started playing drums. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I had a little bit of a head start, just getting experience and acquiring skills playing an instrument. And um, there was just nobody around to really play music with um my, my brother was getting into guitar and we played in a band together at times but drums are an atrocious solo instrument and so um you know i wanted to i wanted to make songs and and the only way for me to do that was to learn how to record and so very early on you know when i was 10 or 11 years old i, I started um using home stereo equipment and setting it up to be able to overdub you know with two cassette decks so i could play a drum part and then play guitar on top of that and have it captured on another cassette deck and then bounce it back to another cassette deck and add another guitar part you know or a bass part or whatever and so that was sort of like it was always my way to be able to actually create music instead of just you know playing drums by myself and um that sort of evolved into getting a little Tascam Porta Studio 244, you know, like four track cassette recorder. And um, then eventually I had a studio in a garage with a Fostex B16 half inch 16 track and a little Tascam console. And so it really started early on and, and just evolved, you know, through um, my experiences, you know, developing as a musician and a songwriter and um, playing in bands and stuff. The recording was always a part of that. And so then, you know, that the, the T-Ride project that, that you mentioned, um, that was a that was a huge huge thing for me you know like i joined that band when i was 16 years old um i worked on those songs that ultimately manifested as that first record for years i mean uh, you know the record came out when i was maybe 21 or something like that and um yeah 92 so i was 21 years old so i'd been working on that thing for 4 years you know in various forms and when you know that project despite everybody's pie-in-the-sky visions for it, you know, that we signed to Hollywood Records and everybody's like, it's going to be the biggest thing in the fucking universe and you're going to sell gajillions of records and be super rock stars. That didn't happen. And so coming out of that experience is when I really realized, like, um, I love making the record. Touring was fun, but not, not the same kind of experience that recording is. Like recording just has, it satisfies the sort of technical side of my brain. It satisfies my desire to really be able to control and 
and perfect things. Um, and, you know, performing is just a different kind of experience. It's just a much more, you know, spontaneous, chaotic um, thing where, where you have very little control and it's just a moment that happens. And I think there are people that really thrive in that. It's, it, I don't get off on that enough to have that be my life, you know. And so I realized that was the lesson I learned. Don't join the fucking band. Hmm. Stupid. Um, I, I put all of my eggs in that basket by being a member of the band and having to go and tour and shut down the studio and all that stuff. And when I got back, it's like, fuck, I should just make the record and let somebody else go do that and I'll go make another record, you know? It makes so much more sense for me. That really was that moment. Do not join the band. So, you know, from that point on, it was like, it was very clear to me that I, I want to, you know, I want to be a record producer. I'm just like trying to imagine if I could read a chapter in a book about how Eric got from where he was to where he is now. And was it like the, was the Third Eye Blind record the record that really puts you on the map as a producer? Or was there any records before that, do you think? And what led up to that, I guess, is... is yeah. Is my question. Well, uh, there's there's two there's two things um, that are in absolutely essential ingredients to being able to make the transition that happened for me that really transformative moment where I went from just you know billing by the hour for studio time to having a manager and a lawyer and having record companies call me and all of that stupid shit. One of those essential elements is that I worked my fucking ass off. I spent 14 hours in a day in a studio every day for most of my life. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And the other essential element is being extraordinarily lucky. And so, you know, I believe that there are times in everybody's lives, you know, um, hopefully, I, you know, actually, there, I, I think a lot of people maybe don't get this opportunity, actually. I know they don't. But where a door gets opened um, for you, and for me, that door was in the form of a band called Smash Mouth and a band called Third Eye Blind. Those doors opened up in front of me. And because I had been obsessing over making records for the previous decade of my life, it's all I thought about or did or you know, engaged in for 10 years leading up to that, I could walk through both of those doors and capitalize on the opportunity. And I, I know that there's hundreds, thousands of people out there that are insanely gifted and equally passionate and equally experienced, you know, making records and probably fucking way better at it than I am. And that door just hadn't opened for them at some point, you know, just really sad. But, you know, it, it's it's definitely a reality, you know, like. If that hadn't happened for me, I would probably still be hanging out in the Bay Area, you know, just recording local bands and doing that. Still happy as a clam doing it, but, you know, it would just be a different experience, you know. That process of, like, those doors opening, the success coming, was it hard to kind of go, okay, I know the success is coming, or were you just overwhelmed? It was totally surreal, you know. Surreal in, in a, a bunch of ways. You know, I think... um there's definitely a satisfaction and a sense of confidence that you get from having a validation like that. Like, Hey, my shit works, you know, like I did this, it's out there, it's on the radio. It was a, it was a really dramatic transformation for me because the way the timing worked out, the smash mouth record and the third eye blind records came out at the same time in 97. 
and both went to radio at the same time. And there was a time where Walking on the Sun and Semi-Charmed Life were competing for the number one position, you know, for airplay and sales as a, as singles. And so I, I literally just exploded into the fucking, you know, record-making world out of nowhere. Nobody had ever heard of me or anything and was just like, who the fuck is this guy that has songs number one and number two on the fucking mm-hmm. charts right now? And it was just bizarre. I got calls from every producer manager on the planet and every A&R guy, like everybody was just, you know, all up my ass, which was great. And I'm super grateful for that. And I'm still everything, you know, that that I do, every call that I get to to work with, you know, an artist that I'm fortunate to be in the room with is be, is from the momentum of of that those moments, you know, like it's just still continuing to this day because the projects that I got off of those records, you know, were because those records were out there and my name was on those records and people called me because of them. And then there would be more opportunities, more doors that got opened that I could walk through. And then I got to work with Queens of the Stone Age or Good Charlotte or Nickel Creek or, you know, All American Rejects or whatever. All of those things came from from that really pivotal moment. And so I think... It's surreal to to sort of experience that transition and, you know, I'm just immeasurably grateful for it. At the same time, it's it's very weird because I know that for years leading up to that point, I was doing the same things, approaching my recordings the same way, making the same types of recordings. Nothing was really different about what I was doing on either side of that line. And it really highlighted for me that I could have been, I you know, what I was doing was not by itself the thing that was responsible for the success, that it has mm-hmm. to be combined with the opportunity. Were you legally and financially prepared to reap the benefits? In other words, were there contracts, were there, or did the, you get into these records, they hit and you were like, oh, am I going to get royalties on the back end? Or like, were you um, educated in that in those there, ways? There, yeah, there was a little bit of a rough transition there, and uh, and I was able to sort of navigate around one of them a little bit, and uh, and so on the Third Eye Blind record, you know, <laughs> that project was really funny in a lot of ways. But um, uh, one of the things that happened was, uh, you know, um, Stephen and his manager were very aggressive negotiators, and I really didn't have somebody representing me when uh, when we. Th- discussed you know payment for that project and so um and i certainly didn't get paid badly for it but one of the things that happened was that um they argued that they would put a cap on the one point the one royalty point that i had so um i would only get paid on the first million records and that after that you know the contribution that i made to the record doesn't matter you know which was just such when i think about it now it's such an absurd argument it's still the same record that's getting sold you know, copy million and one, you know, mm-hmm. but, you know, sadly, that was the kind of business stuff that they went for. And at the time I was like, you know, whatever, fuck it. You know, I, you know, who knows if this band's going to fucking sell any records. Dude, 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 who gives a shit? You know, like whatever, a million, <laughs> million records, nobody's going to sell, you know, nobody's going to give a shit. So, um, so I, I agreed to it, you know? And so, yeah, so he, you know, I couldn't undo that one, but you know, I don't have any regrets about it. I'm, I'm, grateful to have been a part of the project and you're still associated with the project which has you know sure people yeah. hear that and go yeah, people oh, yeah. still mention it you know you of know. course 
Yeah. That's, I was going to say, that's, that can be the benefit in those cases where if you have walked through that door and you haven't prepared yourself legally and something hits, as long as your name is on it, well, although that's a bit of a challenge in this day and age, but um, it can, it, I guess that can be a side benefit, but I can, like I'm wondering, let's just say you didn't, let's say you got minimal, let's just say you got paid for your time and you got your name on the record. Do you think the success still would have come? Yeah, the opportunities that I got from being involved in that project is worth, you know, uh, not only a lot of money, um, but uh, a life experience that is just invaluable, for sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's that's really what's important to me. I've, I've never really been money-driven, and that's why, you know, maybe I should have had royalties on all of the records that were sold with Thread Blind Record. I don't give a shit. Whatever, you know. My life's fucking great, you know, like... I come into the studio every day, whether somebody's paying me or not. I still maintain I've never worked a fucking day in my life because I just enjoy it too much, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I, money just hasn't really ever been the thing for me. It's the experience that's important to me. And I think there's lots of things that I could have done along the ways that where I could have been more focused about making more money and probably could be a, have have had a lot more money in my life, but I don't care, you know? I just want to tinker around and build gear and build walls in my sound room and fuck around with drums. And, you know, like that's what, that's what gets me off. You know, it makes my life awesome. I've, I've been told by, by others that you are in, in their words, kind of a savant and, and very, you're a mad scientist, a savant and uh, just a guy who's incredibly passionate about this. And it, and it definitely shows. Do you think sometimes that your enthusiasm for it uh, is, maybe the band doesn't have the same enthusiasm that you're working with. In other words, your enthusiasm is so much more than theirs that you kind of have to get them on board and really pump them up. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I pride myself in bringing enough enthusiasm and ins inspiration for everybody, you know? And so like, cause every record that I get involved with, I, I really am at going into it with the intention of making the fucking greatest record I've ever made in my life. You know, like, why wouldn't I? There's no reason not to do that. Because so, you just never know. You never know. And why would I not try to make the best record I've ever fucking made? The most timeless, incredible, important record ever. That's, that's what I set out to do every time. Don't always achieve it, but you definitely won't achieve it if you're not trying for it. That's for damn sure, you know? And like... You know, so I, I bring that level of intensity and focus and inspiration to the projects that I work on. I want it to be not just good, not just great, but exceptional, fucking extraordinary, you know. And and so um, I think, you know, at times it is infectious. And, you know, there's a lot of people that have worked in the studio that have, have come through here over the years. You know, I mean, at Toast, Jakir assisted me when... You know, when I recorded the Third Eye Blind stuff there and then he came to L.A. and engineered some stuff for me because he's just a brilliant, brilliant record maker and, um, you know, has was always totally overqualified to be helping me. You know, like he's just an amazingly talented guy and has gone on to be an amazing mixer and producer and engineer and, you know, um, for himself, which is which is incredible. And, you know, there's a guy named Matt Radosevich that was here and so that. He's gone on to be an incredible, you know, mixer, producer, songwriter. There's another guy named Kean that's now just transitioning to be into a, a really incredible mixer. There's a guy named Mike Busby that assisted me for a while, who's now an incredible producer, songwriter. Like, 
you know, um, I'm not saying that I'm responsible for all of that stuff, but when people get into an environment where there's there's somebody in the room every day going, we're going to do the fucking best thing ever right now. That's what we're here to do. You just start to get in that mindset of like, I'm here to do incredible shit, and I believe in my ability to do that. And um, it's just like I said before, you know, having inspiration is it's the most valuable thing in the world. There's there's no piece of equipment or no, you know place or trick or rule or anything that replaces that desire to do something incredible you know you sound like a coach for a team yeah i know <laughs> i know this is sounding more like a fucking self-help chat you know or presentation but um I, it's really important to me it's it's a big deal you know it's a really big deal so we're we're about out of time but a couple parting questions sure just with in regards to what you just said what do you think makes someone like Jakir and, and the other gentleman you mentioned outstanding in what they do? What is it that you identify that you say, that guy's really good or that gal's really great? There is sort of, uh, you know, sort of like an inherent musicality, I think, that people have, you know, just based on whatever their influences wa- are. And, you know, whenever somebody sits down in front of a pair of speakers and starts affecting things starts making adjustments and you're pushing things in directions you know so like whether it's going to get brighter or bassier or more compressed or less or wetter or drier or whatever you're making all of these decisions based on your instincts and what ends up happening is that either your instincts line up in a way and because because really what we're talking about is commercial success is what you're Mm -hmm. really talking about your instinct instincts um match up with a buying public's instincts in a way that, you know, there's enough overlap there that your instincts become valuable. And so when you sit down and you're making choices and moving things in a direction, it becomes more desirable to a buying public. And so I think there is a a big part of that, um, that your instincts just find a receptive audience. And so that's, that's been, you know, something that was, I think, very available to me in the 90s. My instincts were very well received, you know, in the context of that time. You know, I'm having to sort of like try and move forward and stay relevant, you know, as things change and new genres are emerging and new recording techniques are emerging and, you know, can continue to evolve so I can stay relevant and not just do things the way I did them in the fucking 90s. You know, that worked then. It's not necessarily going to work now. And so, but those guys... Jakir, Kian, Matt, Mike Busby, they have instincts that are well-received by a large audience. And then Mm -hmm. it has to be combined with a real passion and desire to work hard on it and develop it. If you don't go and fucking do it, you know, and work hard at it, I I just, I feel like you're you're not going to be able to compete with all the people, you know, motherfuckers like me that do it 14 hours a day, you know? (laughs) (laughs) You got to bring your A game. You really do, man. There's people out there that are insanely gifted, insanely talented, and work their asses off. That's what you're competing against, you know? And so everybody does it in their own way, but, you know, there's a result that everybody sort of arrives at, and you're going to be pitted against other people. It was one of the things that was, you know, inspiring about coming to LA, man. You walk into the fucking big ocean here. Like, yeah. there are a lot of badasses here that are great at what they do. Amazing. I was fortunate enough yesterday, I just hung out with Jim Scott, like oh, know, yeah. um, an incredible record maker, incredibly cool guy, and just 
seeing his setup and hearing a little bit of what he was doing, you know, just super gracious guy, let me come in and sort of crash his session and just, you know, whatever. And um, just realizing like, man, there's a lot of really, really incredibly talented people, you know, just within arm's reach in this town, you know, and it's like, how do I get, how do I convince somebody to get me to mix their record instead of fucking Jim Scott? You know, like he's incredible at what he does, you know. Did you find that transition from the Bay Area to Los Angeles a challenging one for you um, just culture wise? Uh, you know, I, I sort of created my own little universe here. So I, I, you know, I, I moved into this building in the transition. There was, there was a brief period of time where I was floating around other studios, which I did not really enjoy a lot. Um, and so I have, I brought my own little culture with me. And so, um, barefoot recording is just a little sort of like haven of Northern California, you know, vibe sort of dropped in the middle of Hollywood. Um, interesting. Well, my parting question to you is, where does where is it that you continue to seek your inspiration? Where or where is it that you go to for inspiration to like shake things up and and generate new ideas that really keep you going? You know whether it's another producer like Jim Scott or YouTube videos or books or you know what anything in particular? Yeah, I mean I love you know when I hear a new record come out that just sounds really exciting. You know. Um, there was a, I really love the sound of the new Alabama Shakes record, you know, mm, yeah. it's great. A, a, a friend of mine, I found out, like, I didn't know when it came out, but this guy, Sean Everett, um, who I'm friends with, did that fucking record. And I was just blown away. I mean, it's just, it's such an amazingly cool record. And he did such an incredible job on it. Those, that's inspiring for me when I hear a record that's like, wow, that is fucking incredible. And, you know, this is raising the bar. It's just like the way the low end is shaped on that record and, you know, how vibey things sound and both, you know, just sonically powerful, but still very nostalgic. Like it's an incredible record and it's just Mm. super inspiring, you know. So I get a lot from that. I get um, some of its, you know, technology stuff, you know, like I am hugely, hugely emotionally invested in building undertone audio gear. And a, a big part of that was sort of the, the psychological benefit of it. Like, I know what I've invested in these consoles, not financially, but, but really just the energy that I put into figuring out what is the theor- theoretical best recording console ever made. And so the expectation when I sit down at that console is that it's going to be the best thing I've ever done and better than anything else anything anybody else does because i i believe that this console's better than anything anybody else is using that's hmm. the expectation i have now and i'm trying to meet that expectation every time i sit down and so you know like having gear sitting in front of you I, and i've had this before where it's like uh you know i'm not really into this neotech console you know if i had a neve it would sound better you know and and so you sit down with this expectation that it's you already have a limitation that it's not going to be the best thing it's going to be, you know? And so a big part of the undertone endeavor was to create that mindset for myself that like, this is a new level for me. I'm, I'm going to be making things that are better than what I did before. You know, are you selling channel strips out mm-hmm. there in the world? Yeah, we sure are. There's um, you know, at, at this point we have uh, three products that are, um, currently available so there's the um 
the rack mount channel strip, which has a mic pre and an equalizer, just like what's in the console. Then mm-hmm. there's a four-channel mic pre. So if you just need mic pre's, you can get a you know a one rack space unit that has four of these really great Class A mic preamps in it. And then we just a couple days ago released a new product, which is an instrument cable, something very oh. very simple, um, but uh, is totally revolutionary. Um, it's another one of these crazy fucking things that just falls out of the brain of Larry Jasper in the morning after he eats his fucking banana, you know? And, like, we made an instrument cable where you can vary the capacitance of the cable. And wow. um, the the capacitance of, of an instrument cable has a gigantic influence on the sound of the instrument. It's something that I struggled with for years, just not really understanding it at first and then becoming more aware of it through talking to Larry about it and then ultimately coming up with a solution where you have this guitar cable where you can make it sound like any other instrument cable you have, but it also gives you access to these sounds that you've probably never heard before, like an extraordinarily low capacitance with your instrument. And it's an, it's an incredible sound. It's this amazing open sort of you know, crystalline sound where you hear all of the upper harmonics of your guitar or bass or whatever you're playing through. It's one of those things like after, you know, I've been using it for a year and it's like, I just will not record guitar or bass without it now. You know, any, uh, any plans to come out with any, uh, like, I don't know, a summing box. We've talked about that. Um, we're just, we're trying, you know, it's a small operation and, um, you know, sadly we, we move a little bit slow, um, but we're very meticulous about what we do. You know, everything has to meet a certain standard. And um, so what we're doing right now, all of our energy is is focused on this sort of reworking of the unfair child, which is, you know, a, a recreation <laughs> of a of a Fairchild compressor. And um, uh, so I really want to get that thing in a place. The, the first, first generation that we built was all hand-wired and stuff, and it's just not it's not manufacturable in a way that where we can really offer it to people um, in a way that was made sense. And so we're redoing in a way. So it's going to just be rock solid, you know, super reliable. We can ship it anywhere on the fucking planet and, uh, and refine some of the functionality of it and uh, yeah, finalize the design of it. So, so is it undertoneaudio.com? Yes, it is indeed. Okay. We'll we'll put a link in the uh, in the description. Well, this has been fantastic, Eric. I, I appreciate your time. I, I really enjoy the records you make, and uh, they appeal to me in a in a great way. And I've heard amazing things about you over the years. We have a mutual friend in John Greenham. Oh yeah, yeah, John's John, great. John John and I have been friends for for several years. So does he master your stuff? He does. Yeah, yeah. John's um, great. He used to when he lived up here. You know, we had established that mastering, mixing, re, mixing guy relationship, and then cool. when he moved to LA, I was like, "Oh, whatever, dude. I'll just Dropbox it to you. I don't care." Yeah, yeah. He's been on the podcast. Yeah, I, I saw him on there. That's great. Uh, thank you again. Have a yeah. great one. Thank you. I, I I really appreciate you having me on the show. It's great. Oh, I appreciate the time you've taken. It's it's, it's a cool thing that uh, to have you talk to us. Cool. All, All right, right, man. Take care. Eric. All right, take care. Bye. 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 Holy crap. That was a fun interview. What a bunch of cool information to hear. And uh, a lot of a lot of straight talk from uh, Mr. Valentine. That was great. So uh, thanks for listening. We are out of time. I got to go pick up the kids. So I, I do want you to know that our music is provided by Cliff Truesdell. Our voiceover intro, that is Chuck Smith. 
And Cole Williams helps us with uh, social media support and additional audio support there. And uh, I want to thank our sponsors, uh, Gearslets.com, Audio Technica. Great to be here with you today. Thanks for listening. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to Gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.